lot of people think that David, I'm sorry, not David, Peter, was just a crude fisherman with little godly background until he was called by Christ. And yet if we read John, the first chapter, we see that his brother was a disciple of John the Baptist. And very likely, Peter was as well. And so when Andrew found the Christ, as it were, he told his brother, he said, we have found the Christ. And Peter, of course, was very interested. The sense is that while Peter was a rugged individual, uh, he was a religious individual, you might say, or a godly man to some degree, uh, probably to a far greater degree than people realize. But he realized his own human nature as well. You can read some of that in the uh, book of John, especially the first chapter there. But we find that at the end of Christ's life on this earth, a particular incident that took place, and we'll notice that over in Mark, the 14th chapter. I think we'll be okay. He's asking about a power cord. I think we'll be all right for right now. I'll let you know at the end. (laughs) Actually, this is my way of making sure I don't speak too long. But it it looks good. This computer is better than the other one. Uh, Over in Mark, the 14th chapter, we read of an incident here that uh, is, is quite instructive to us, or it should be instructive to us. Mark the 14th chapter, and we'll notice here in verse 26. This was where Jesus had kept the Passover with his disciples. They'd gone out to the Mount of Olives. It says, verse 26, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, in one sense, that was, that, that was uh, prophesied that that would happen. But it is interesting to take note of why it happened. But after I've been raised, uh, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now, you know, they, uh, Peter did not think that he would deny Christ. It says in verse 31, he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same, or likewise. I think that Peter was not just being... Uh, a, a braggart at that point, he no doubt sincerely believed that that's what he would do. He would be willing to die for Christ. And when we look at the, uh, the uh, things that happened after that, we see that he was willing to put his life on the line in a certain way. Notice over in John, the 18th chapter, what happened here. John 18. And verse 10. This is after Judas had led the posse to arrest Jesus. And it says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, when you think about that event... I think that sometimes people have the idea that he just took that sword out and just kind of boom and must have aimed for his ear. But this was probably far more dramatic than that. I am sure he whipped out that sword, either right hand or left hand, and he probably took a big swing at the head of this individual. The individual ducked, and all he got was the ear. And I'm sure that it wasn't just a nice, neat little clean cut. You know, the ear is pretty close to the head. He was going for the man's head. And all he got was the ear. We need to understand that Peter was willing to fight for Christ at that point in time. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? And then 
after this, we see that all the disciples were scattered. It didn't work out the way that Peter thought it would work out. And the end result was that they ran like scared chickens. In fact, there is a chicken connection a little bit later. So in verse 66, I'm sorry, uh, I've already passed that. Uh, uh, I'm a little confused. I think it's, it's uh, jet lag here. Now let's go to Mark 14 once again. Mark 14 and, and verse 47. We see that they were scattered. It says, One of those who stood by drew the sword and struck the servant of the high priest's ear and cut off his ear. And Jesus said, Have you come out against me as robbers with swords and clubs and so forth? And then in verse 50 it says, Then they all forsook him and fled. And then in verse 66 we read, Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. And he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and the rooster crowed. Then verse 69, And the servant girl saw him again, and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. And notice in verse 71, he denied Christ the third time. He says, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed and Peter called to mind the words of Christ. He says, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he went, uh, he, he thought about it as he thought about it, he wept. So here was a man who was willing to give his life. Here was a man who was the one who carried the sword and was willing to use the sword at one instant there. And yet when it didn't work out the way that he thought it should, and Christ told him to put his sword back, and then he went out, we find that he denied Christ three times just as Jesus said he would. Now today I'm going to show you why Peter failed. Why it was that he failed, in spite of all his courageous and sincere boasting. And I think we have to realize that he really thought that this was what he would do. He would be willing to die. I don't think he was just boasting to be boasting. He was saying that he really believed that he was willing to give his life. And yet, when he was confronted a little bit later on that night, three times he denied And we will look at two other reasons why people fail when trouble comes. In reality, we'll see that there is a common denominator in all of these situations. But let's get back to Peter. Peter and the other apostles walked with Jesus up and down those dusty uh, trails along the mountain trails in Israel. Uh, They had a close relationship with him. They likely wrestled with him from time to time being young men pushing, shoving, uh, maybe wrestling and so forth a little bit, and maybe not rolling on the ground, but pushing and shoving and so forth, as young men might do. Uh, They spent many hours in conversation with Christ, and they observed the miracles firsthand that Christ had performed. But when an unforeseen test came, contrary to their profession of being willing to die for Christ, what did they do? Well, they cut and they ran. So consider, have you ever thought that what you would do under similar circumstances? What if you had been in Peter's shoes? What would you do? I think it's it's common for us to think, well, I wouldn't have denied Christ. None of the disciples thought that they would, and they were a lot closer to him than we are in the sense that they had seen him, they had touched him, felt him, you know, that sort of thing. They had listened to him all that time. But what would we do under similar circumstances, and how do we know what we would do? Have you ever professed loyalty and faithfulness unto death? I hope you have. I hope you have. Luke 14. Luke 14. Because this is read to us before we're baptized in almost every case. I know that I always cover this with people before they're baptized, and I think most of our ministry does. 
Jesus said in verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate, meaning love to a lesser degree by comparison, his father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, Jesus said, he cannot be my disciple. To me, this is one of the scariest verses in all the Bible. Because it is so severe in a sense. It is saying, you cannot be my disciple unless you put me first. Before all relationships that are close to you. Including your near and dear life. And if you're not willing to put your life on the line, you cannot be my disciple. And then it shows that we are to count the cost. And to consider that. And so when you were baptized, when I was baptized, we had these words read to us. And we said that we were willing to do this. And yet, when you look at history, you find that so many who have professed that they would put their lives on the line have not done so. When the time comes, when the trial comes, will we stand firm or will we cut and run? How is it that men, who were truly real men, could break and run as Peter and the other disciples did. What was missing? What was missing? I think the easy answer that we always give is that, well, they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. But there's something else there. There's part of the story that was left out in the reading of it. Let's go back to Mark, the 14th chapter once again. Mark 14. And verse 31. Here we pick it up there. He spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Verse 34. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. Be vigilant. Be alert. But there's a little bit more to it as we read through here. So he went further, verse 35, and he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will or what I will, but what you will. It's really an amazing thing. And that's the place that every one of us has to come. Not my will, but God's will. And so he came and he found these three disciples that he'd taken off with him there uh, asleep. And so he said to Peter, he says, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Then verse 38, watch and pray. Watch and pray. Why? lest you enter into temptation. And yet Christ understood the spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. They'd probably lost a lot of sleep by this time, traveling and everything that they were doing. And yet Jesus Christ had lost a lot of sleep as well. And yet he understood the gravity of the situation. And so he spent some time on his knees before his creator, watching and praying. And yet the disciples didn't comprehend what was going to happen there. Again, he went away and he prayed and spoke the same words. Verse 40, and when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. They were embarrassed. The sermonette was talking about emotions and so forth. They were embarrassed. They did not know what to say. Then he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. They were told to watch and to pray that they let it not enter into temptation. Jesus knew that these men knew him. They had been close to him for three and a half years. But there was a severe trial. The most severe trial of their lives was coming up at this point, at least up to this point in their lives. It was coming up, and they needed to be close to their Creator. And he knew that if they weren't, they would enter into temptation. We find here 
that they needed to watch and to pray. They needed to be close to God at that particular moment. We never know when the trials are going to come upon us. And this is why we have to be watching and praying. We need to be praying. We need to be studying. We need to have that close relationship with our Creator at all times. Because we never know when the trial may come. There was something left out there in their relationship. Now it's evident that Peter trusted in his own strength when he said, I will fight for you. I will die for you. He was trusting himself, not God. And he thought he knew his own mind, just as so many people do. I remember a young lady one time that said, well, well, Mr. Weston, you don't know. I'm stronger than you think. Trust me. And I thought, oh, no. Don't think that way. That's the wrong way to think. When we think that we are strong and we entered into temptation, that's a problem. We need to think or look to God for that strength because we have a certain amount of strength in this physical life. Yes, men go off and they die just as Peter was willing to fight there at the moment. But when things didn't happen just the way he wanted to, and it wasn't somebody with a sword, it was a young girl saying, oh, you were with him, then he denied Christ three times. It's evident that he trusted his own strength, and yet here was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who recognized that he needed to be close to Christ. I'm sorry, close to God. He needed to be close to God at that point in time. And so he went off and he prayed, especially as he was entering into that temptation. But the disciples, who needed to be close to God as well, didn't take the time. The Bible instructs us not to put our confidence in ourselves. How often do we hear people say, well, if you can't trust yourself, who can you trust? And everybody that's gone through high school has probably gone to a high school graduation ceremony where somebody has stood up and said, don't listen to anybody, trust yourself. Trust your own emotions. Trust your own thoughts. That seems to happen at all graduation ceremonies that I've been to, except Ambassador College. But every place else, especially high school graduation, not only my own, but others that I've gone to, they tell you, trust yourself. And that sounds good, and that appeals to human emotion and thought and our mental capacities. But is that what the Bible says? In in, uh, Proverbs 3, Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 8, very familiar for us. I hope we read the Proverbs regularly and that we focus on this. I know I have this underlined in my Bible because it's a reminder. It says in verse 5, Proverbs 3, verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Now, Peter was willing to fight for Christ, but he was leaning on his own understanding of what was called for at the time. He was not really trusting in God. He was trusting in his own self. He was a young man. He was probably very strong as a fisherman had to be, rowing the boats and pulling in nets and doing all the things they were doing and walking up and down those hills that you have there in in, uh, Israel. Uh, Anybody that's been over there recognizes rugged terrain. And they must have been in terrific physical shape. It says, In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the eternal and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Notice 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, another verse that probably is memorized by many of you. Uh, Verse 12. It says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Peter and the apostles thought they stood. They thought they were willing to die for Christ, that they would never deny him. And yet, when the time came... They fell. Now, God was merciful. He picked them back up. God understood. 
And in one sense, they had to fulfill prophecy, but the reason they fulfilled prophecy is because they weren't ready to enter into temptation or they weren't ready to take on that temptation because they weren't close enough to God. And Jeremiah, the 10th chapter, is a passage of Scripture that I've personally learned to pray more often. Uh, It's one of those that, you know, God answers some prayers very quickly. And some prayers he takes a little bit longer to answer. Sometimes he says no. But here's a prayer that you can pray, as Jeremiah did, and you'll almost always get a quick answer for it. Verse 23, he says, Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. And here's the prayer. It says, O Lord, or O Eternal, correct me, but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. How often do we pray for God to correct us? You know, that's a, that's a tough prayer to pray, isn't it? Uh, I, I've met a few people over the years. I remember one young man, he said, uh, you know, I'm ready for it. You know, bring it on. <laughs> that, that's not a good thing to pray, I don't think. It's not a wise thing to pray. Maybe that's the, the brave thing to pray, but maybe I'm just a coward. But I, when I pray this prayer, Lord, Lord, correct me, but with justice, please do so only as much as you need to. Actually, help me to be able to read your word. And be corrected by your word, that's far less painful than the other ways to be corrected, isn't it? So, uh, yes, God, correct me as need be. Because if we really have faith and trust and confidence in God and in Jesus Christ, we recognize that there is nothing that they will do to us that is harmful to us. Not in the end. We're all going to die someday. You might as well get used to that idea because it's going to happen. I don't care what your age is. You're going to die someday. I'm going to die someday. And the the sad thing is that that day gets closer all the time. I I just turned 70. (laughs) Actually, 71, because I crossed the international date line on my birthday, and I had two birthdays that year. I've had 71 birthdays, but only 70 Whatever. (laughs) But, you know, as you get closer, boy, it goes by fast. And you realize that things happen at a certain point in time. We're not here forever. So what what can God do to us that's be bad for? The worst that can happen is we can die. And that's going to happen. But do we really think that our Father will do something for us that's not good? If he knows that we need to be corrected, isn't that what we need? Isn't that what we want? I think in the end we do. But Peter and others were trusting in themselves. They didn't realize it, but that's what they were doing. He says, correct me with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. And that's exactly what happened to these men. Christ corrected them. And yet after that, they were willing to put their lives on the line, and at least 11 of them, well, Judas killed himself, but those other 11 that were with Christ that night, except for John apparently, actually were martyrs. They were willing to give their lives for Christ. That's one example where we trust ourselves. Peter and the apostles trusted themselves instead of trusting God. Let's look at another example of someone who came up short. And in one sense, he was trusting himself, but there was another addition to it. Let's go back to 2 Chronicles 22. 2 Chronicles, the 22nd chapter. This is a a fascinating story. 2 Chronicles 22, we'll begin in verse 10. Uh, this, this woman, Athaliah, was a, a very wicked woman. And 
It says she was the mother of Ahaziah. When she saw that her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the royal heirs of the house of Judah. We normally think of men being cruel and violent, but here was a woman who no doubt had others do the job, but she gave out the word to kill all of the royal heirs of the house of Judah. But Jehoshabiah, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being murdered and put him, put him and his nurse in a bedroom. So here was this very, very young individual, about a year of age, and he was spirited away, as we sometimes use the expression. So Jehoshabiah, the daughter of King Jehoram, the wife of Jehoiada, the priest, for she was a sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah so that she did not kill him. And he was hidden with them in the house of God for six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. And as we'll see a little bit later, she was not really popular. She was a very self-centered woman, very cruel woman. But they took this uh, this young uh, infant, really uh, about a year of age, and they took him aside. And then in the seventh year, after they've hid him for six years, uh, we read in the 23rd chapter, verse 1, it says, In the seventh year, Jehoiada, this is the priest again, strengthened himself and made a covenant with the captains of hundreds, Azariah the son of Jehoram, Ishmael the son of Jeho- uh, Jehohanan, and these other unpronounceables. Uh, verse 2, they went throughout the Judah, and they gathered the Levites from all the cities of Judah and the chief fathers of Israel, and they came to Jerusalem. Then all the assembly made a covenant with the king and the house of God. They made a covenant with the seven-year-old. And he said to them, Behold, the king's son shall reign as the eternal has said of the sons of David. Now let's pick it up in verse 9. Jehoiada, the priest, gave to the captains of hundreds of spears and the large and small shields which had belonged to King David. They were in the temple of God. They brought him there. And they're going to have a coronation ceremony for this young king. He's put everything in place, Jehoiada did. Verse 10, then he said, all the people, every man with his weapon in his hand, from the right side of the temple to the left side of the temple, along by the altar and by the temple all around the king. And they brought out the king's son, put the crown on him, gave him the testimony, and made him king. And Jehoiada and his sons anointed him and said, long live the king. And when Athaliah heard the noise of the people running and praising the king, she came to the people in the temple of the Lord. She heard all this commotion. She wanted to know what's going on. And she came there. In verse 13, she looked, and there was the king standing by his pillar at the entrance. Now, that's an interesting statement, standing by his pillar. What was that pillar? Uh, we could speculate a lot, but we, we, uh, we don't know for sure the answer. Some thought the stone of destiny, the stone of scone. Uh, I, I don't know. That's all speculation. But the leaders and the trumpeters were by the king. And all the people land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. Also the singers with musical instruments and those who led in praise. And Athaliah tore her clothes and said, treason, treason. She yelled out amongst the crowd there. And we see here that Jehoiada the priest then commanded that she be taken into custody. He said, don't kill her in the house of the Lord. Verse 15, they seized her, and she uh, went by way of the entrance of the horse gate into the king's house, and they killed her there. They put this usurper who destroyed the royal seed, all except this one young man, and uh, this really child, a very small child, uh, put them all to death, and they gave her what was due her for her crimes. They took her out and executed her. Let's notice now in Second Chronicles 24, first of all, verses 1 and 2, it says, Joash was seven years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zabiah of Beersheba. And Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord. 
Now that's a good start to the statement. But notice the rest of it. All the days of Jehoiada the priest. So Jehoiada was the one along with his wife. They spared him away. They uh, protected him. They preserved his life. They brought him forth and had him coronated to be king. And as he grew up, here was this older man that he followed, Jehoiada. And then let's pick it up in verse 15. It says, But Jehoiada grew old and was full of days, and he died. He was 130 years old when he died. Very old man. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel both toward God and his house. Now verse 17 it says, Now after the death of Jehoiada, the leaders of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. They came there and basically they said, You've been following this old man, and it's time for a change. Uh, That's old-fashioned what you've been doing there. Must have said something like that to him. And now he's gone, so we need to do something different. We need to change everything around. It says, And the king listened to them. Verse 18, Therefore they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served wooden images and idols. So they turned right back into the worship of pagan gods and goddesses and idols and all kinds of things like that. Wood and stone. Went back to that. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Very difficult for us to believe that here they would know the true God, at least ostensibly they knew him. And and even if nothing else, they've been away from these other things for so long, you would have thought there had been no attraction for them. And yet, immediately, after, very shortly after the death of Jehoiada, they went back in that direction. How sad that is. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the eternal. And they testified against them, but they would not listen. So there were voices in Judah at the time trying to bring the people back. There were prophets, there were individuals, there were voices speaking up. And the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. So this was the son of Jehoiada, who stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord? Now, that's not what they wanted to hear. And I'm sure he shouted it at them, so they that uh, you cannot prosper. Because you have forsaken the eternal, he also has forsaken you. And so they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, the command of Joash, whose very life had been spared by Jehoiada and his wife, the ones who had made him king, who brought him out, to be king. They could have taken him off and just gotten him out of the country. But no, they put their lives on line and risked their lives to make him king. And mentored him for many, many years. They conspired against the son of Jehoiada. And at the command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the eternal. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him. But killed his son, and as he died, he said, The Lord, or the Eternal, look on it and repay. Now, here was an individual who we could say trusted in himself, and there's no doubt that was a part of it. But he also looked to Jehoiada the priest as a mentor, as one who was a trusted advisor, and isn't that where some people put their trust and confidence, they put their trust and confidence, not just in themselves, but in a man. When Mr. Armstrong died, how fast did people turn back into pagan practices? I remember when we were in Rome several years ago, we had a guide, lovely woman, taking us around, and we were following the flag, and she was telling us all these things, and She said, you see all these churches around here? And she said, uh, they once were all pagan churches. We love the way she said it, pagan. Not pagan, but pagan. Now, she recognized that. uh, But they had been Christianized. 
we look at people who were once a part of us, who professed that they would never turn back, and what did they do? They went right back into the worship of pagan God, a pagan god, a trinitarian god, coming out of Greek ideas and so forth. Uh, they've gone back to keeping Christmas and Easter and even Halloween, doing all the things that they were once doing. How fast people return. But as long as Mr. Armstrong was there, they looked to him. Now, there was nothing wrong with looking to Mr. Armstrong in one sense, but there was something missing from their lives. I remember a memorial service that I was invited to speak at uh, up in the Toronto area. One of our members' sons had died, and he had gone to Big Sandy at the university there, or the college, uh, as it was, and he, uh, he'd been out of college for some years. He was 37 years old and had a lot of problems and physical problems, and he died. And the funeral service was down in Texas, but they had a memorial service because so many people knew him. That's where he grew up, up in the Toronto area. So I was invited by the father to come and speak, and it was a, a kind of a strange event. There were people from various different Church of God groups, but most of them were from the association's name changed, but the association that a lot of people were a part of at one time. A lot of, a lot of us had been a part of under Mr. Armstrong. And the one who was the, I guess, the master of ceremonies, uh, introducing different people, said, he said, you know, I really feel badly because at one time I, I think I let Jim, that wasn't his name, but I let Jim down. And he said, he asked me a very serious question, and I didn't have the answer. And he said, the reason I didn't have the answer was because I never studied the Bible. And then he corrected himself and said, well, actually, I did study the Bible when I was coming into the church, but then I stopped studying. I wonder how many people find themselves that way, that they studied coming into the church, and then they get too busy to take time to study or to pray. I know that in a group this size, I, and I don't know who you are, I know the names of some of you. I've known some of you for quite a long time and others just a little bit. And, and I have absolutely no idea. I, I like it when I don't know anybody in the, the crowd that I'm speaking of specifically. But I would have to guess that there are people here who do not pray on a daily basis on their knees for more than just a few minutes, if that. There are people who probably fast once a year, and there are people who probably rarely open up their Bible except on the Sabbath. I don't know if it's one person or 20 or 50. I have no idea. Thankfully, I don't know. That's just a guess based on past experience in the church, that there are people like that, but they look to an individual. They may look to Dr. Meredith and, you know, they'll follow Dr. Meredith. Or they may look to Mr. Ames or some other individual that they look to. And that's, that's good in a way, but it's not good enough. Our faith has to go beyond human beings. Because when that human being is gone, where do we stand? Do we stand with God? or whatever is popular at the moment. You see, Jehoiada, I'm sorry, not Jehoiada, Joash, as long as Jehoiada was alive, he followed him. But as soon as he was gone, he had no more backbone. He had no more strength to be able to stand up against evil. And so he went right into it, right back into paganism, idol worship, and furthermore, killed the son of the man who had saved his life because that individual was telling him to get back to the worship of God. So we've seen two examples. Uh, the one where we trust in the self and the other where we trust in other individuals 
other people, a hero, a mentor, or some charismatic figure. I think there were a lot of people that used to trust in a, a voice that was on the radio, on television, that was very charismatic. I'm not speaking of Mr. Herman Armstrong, but another individual there, and they trusted him. And they would say, you know, give it to him. And they were religious hobbyists. But they, they didn't trust in God. In Psalm 146, Psalm 146, there's a scripture here that I think is misapplied in some ways. People take this verse and they say, the Bible says, trust no man. That's not exactly what it says here. Psalm 146, verse 3. He says, do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. No help for what? Well, if you've been put in jail, some man can bail you out. I, I know I've had to bail a few people out over the years. And by the way, they always want cash. They won't take a check or a credit card. They'll want cash, so you have to go down to your ATM. But it says, don't trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. For help for what? It says, his spirit departs, he returns to his earth. In that very day, his plans perish, or his thoughts perish. Thoughts really is more the sense of the original, at least as far as I can tell. Uh, in other words, recognize that when it comes to your eternal life, when it comes to the big issues of life, man can't save you. It's not saying never trust anybody. You trust your wife. You trust your husband. You, you put trust in individuals all the time up to a certain point. But you don't put your eternal life in the hands of another individual. I remember a woman that I had ordained as a deaconess, her husband a deacon. And her kids went off to Ambassador College. And when things began to come apart, somebody asked her, what are you going to do? And she said, well, I don't know. It depends on what my boys do. Putting her trust in their decision, not her own with her relationship with her creator. It's shocking sometimes the things that happen there. It's not saying we should never trust anybody. We have to put trust in people all the time. When we get on the road, we trust that the other person is not drinking and intoxicated. Uh, it may be a false trust, but we, we trust that most of the people out there are okay. And with a little defensive driving, we'll probably come back safely. But in the big issues of life, of life and death, he said, the Son of Man, or human beings, there is no help. He's going to die, and so are you someday. And so we need to put our trust in a much higher source than some other human being in this life. So we see two sources of strength not to rely on. The first one is self. And the other one that we uh, should not rely on is other people, other human beings. Now, very closely associated with this second point, and I've made it a third point here, although it's, it's so closely related that perhaps it's just a, you know, one is point A and the other one is point B of, of point two. But when we look back in Luke, the 14th chapter once again, which we have already read, but I want to go back there again. When it comes to trusting people, there's really a warning here where Jesus said, remember this was, these were his words, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, and we can prove that that word means to love to a lesser degree by comparison just by going back to where Jacob loved uh, Leah more, than, I'm sorry, not Leah, Rachel more than Leah, and then that translated in the New Testament and so forth. You can do a little bit of uh, connecting dots there, and you can prove it that way. And, of course, the context, we know that God doesn't want us to hate our parents. But he says, does not hate, to, in other words, love to a lesser degree. His father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And, and so the, the point here, the kind of the point B of the second point is that 
we cannot put our trust in family uh, when it comes to where we're going to be, what we're going to do. We, we trust our family to a certain degree, but ultimately, Jesus said, you have to put me first. Now, how often do we see where one individual in a family leaves the church and then everybody else goes along with them? Sometimes it may be an extended family where you have, you know, eight or ten or fifteen individuals in the family, and it seems like when one leaves, they all leave. And you'd think that there must be some independent-minded one there who's going to say, now, wait a minute, what's changed? It often occurs because somebody gets their feelings hurt. And when that individual gets his feelings hurt, he spreads that poison to everybody else, and people follow the, the, uh, the patriarch of the family. Sometimes it's the matriarch of the family. But people follow other people. There are people who went to a particular church group because that's where one of them went, and they decided, well, I, I better go with, with that individual. We need to understand that we, there are some things where we have to stand alone. We have to stand up. We have to put our trust in God and Jesus Christ and put him first and not a family member. Now, this is not to <clears throat> try to divide families, but remember Christ did say, I did not come to bring peace but a sword and, uh, you know, set a, a father against a, a daughter and, well, that's probably poorly quoted, but I think you know the scripture. You should know where that is. I used to look, read that all the time. It's over in Matthew someplace, as I recall. Um, but um, oh well, I'll, I'll, I'll let you find that at a later time. Uh, but it does point out <clears throat> that there would be trouble in the family sometimes. Hopefully not all the time. We want families to be together. We strive for that. We do our best. But because some people are not going to follow God, there's going to be a separation sometimes there. Let's notice back in the book of Deuteronomy, the 13th chapter. The Bible really is very clear on this subject that God has to be before family. Deuteronomy 13 and verse 6. It says, If your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom, your wife that you sleep in the same bed with, or your friend, the friend that you've had all your life, who is a, as your own soul, secretly entices you, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, of the gods of the people which are all around you, now, consider it this way, because realize that the gods that are around us, the religions that are around us, are not the religion of the Bible. They are not the religion that Christ and the apostles had. The religion that we, or the doctrines, the, the truth that we have, is very different from the churches of this world. And there are many quotes that we have, but... In Dr. Mara's booklet on uh, restoring original Christianity, he says that there's no resemblance. It opens up very early in the, the, the chapter there. That the church that, that Jesus founded, or the church of this world, have absolutely no resemblance to the church that, uh, that Jesus founded. It's totally different. And yet when people go back into that, they're doing exactly what is said here, especially if they're following their sons or they're following um, a, a father or a mother or a wife. He said, of the gods of the people which are all around you, near to you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, you shall not, verse 8, Consent to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him. But you shall surely kill him. That's what the Israelites were told. If somebody came along and they had a false god and they tried to promote that false god and introduce him into Israel, they were to take this individual out and kill him, stone him. Even if it was your son, your daughter, 
your brother, your best friend. It doesn't matter who it was. A parent, someone trying to introduce false religion into the nation there. And afterward, the hand of all the people. Now, of course, we don't do that today. But what well, we are, because we don't bring about those, those penalties, the uh, uh, penalties for breaking God's law in that sense, that's not our responsibility. That's the civil authorities, and they're not going to do anything about it. But, but in our mind, we are not to follow that individual. And sometimes we have to cut off that individual from our fellowship or cut off that individual from our, our personal relationship with that individual. Sometimes you can't just cut a person off because they live in their house. But you don't listen to them. You don't go along with them. You shall not consent to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. And you shall stone him with the stones until he dies, because he sought to entice you away from the eternal your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. When someone tries to take us away from the truth, we shouldn't try to protect that individual. Sometimes people come in, they have a heresy within the church, and they're trying to get people to go someplace else or to believe something else. And there's this false sense of loyalty that we have that, oh, I, I better not say anything. Now, I don't think we want a police state where we're just reporting on everybody. I'm not trying to promote that idea. But when someone is totally off track and they're trying to take other people off track and they're you know, promoting ideas that we all know are wrong, we don't, we don't protect them. We, we don't take that that wolf that's got sheep's clothing on it and say, oh, I can't tell the other sheep, or, well, you know, I can't tell the shepherd, and we just let that individual devour other people. He says, so all Israel shall hear and fear and not again do such wickedness as this among you. So God had a, a very strong standard there. Now, notice some of the warnings that God gives us. In Acts, the 20th chapter, Acts 20, you see, we're not to follow our, the dictates of our own heart. We're not to follow some charismatic leader. Uh, we're not to follow family members. Uh, again, to a degree we can, but when, it, when push comes to shove, I think you understand what I'm trying to say here. There's a, there's a balance in all this, but when, when there's a clear separation, we don't follow Someone like that. But here in Acts, the 20th chapter, it's very interesting in verse 28. It says, Therefore take heed yourselves. This is Paul speaking to the elders at Ephesus, where he had met them. Uh, some location, neutral location there, uh, where they'd come to, to visit with him. And he says, uh, Therefore take heed yourselves unto all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He knew that there would be individuals that would try to take advantage of the situation when Paul was not there. And he says, also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch, be alert. And remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now, this is rather interesting here. What, what I find interesting here, it hit me one day, that those individuals who rose up from amongst them probably didn't all give up the Sabbath and holy days. How many people think that as long as somebody keeps the Sabbath and holy days, they must be okay? I'm not asking for your hands, just to think about it. We think, oh, well, I just need to find a church that keeps the Sabbath, or that keeps the Sabbath and holy days. But I would bet that some of the people who fulfilled that prophecy of Paul, they were taking away a following after themselves, probably were still Sabbath keepers, and probably still kept the holy days. But the problem was their motivation. They were taken away from where God was working so they could support themselves, so they could have their own following, 
or promote their own little idea, whether it be calendars or who knows what. There are certain issues that come up from time to time that kind of just recycle and they come back after a few years. And somebody has some idea and they want to promote it. I think we need to think about that. Just because someone is a Sabbath keeper and keeps the holy days does not mean that they're not a wolf. We have to think about those things. I'm not saying that everybody else is a wolf out there, but I think we need to to understand that. Because there are people who take people away from the church of God, and they have their little group, and they do nothing as far as the work goes. Oh, they just get their website, they put something up, oh, we're preaching the gospel. But the bottom line is they got their feelings hurt, they want to go out and they want to do their own thing. And we're not to, to follow people like that. 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, these are warnings for us. 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter, we've talked about this a lot over the years. In verse 8 it says, Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Verse 9, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. You know, when this individual begins to perform all these signs and wonders and there's going to be a great enthusiasm across the world for this individual, I don't know if, if even I understand how powerful that pull is going to be. But we know in advance there's going to be a powerful influence on people. And I know that Dr. Meredith has said that some amongst us will likely fall prey to that. And I think he's right. Don't let it be you, and don't let it be me. But these are going to be powerful signs, and it's going to be very emotionally attached to it with everybody being excited about it. And at the same time, we're going to be the bad guys. It says... Verse 10, and with all unrighteous deception, there's going to be great deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. There's a lot there, really, if you stop and you meditate and you think about it. They didn't love the truth. They had pleasure in unrighteousness. Well, when you look at our world today and all the pleasures that are out there in a, in a very limited sense, but you've got the Internet and you've got pornography and you've got uh, you know, all, all the, the stuff that's out there that, that is being shoved on us, uh, you get caught up in that, and then the emotion comes along and, and the miracles and who knows what uh, might happen as a result of all of that. In Revelation, the third chapter, Revelation 3, we're all familiar with this. I, I find this very remarkable. I won't take time to read all this, but the latest sin grew. And it says in verse 15, I know your works are neither cold nor hot, and I could wish that you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but just say this. Isn't it remarkably odd that at the very time of the end, when all the prophecies of the end begin to come together, that the church of God as a whole is going to be asleep, is going to be complacent, is going to be lukewarm? You just intellectually, it doesn't make sense, does it? But we see people getting caught up in all kinds of goofy stuff. You see people with problems with one another and they get caught up in some argument with somebody and they go off and, and it's, it's the little stuff. I was talking to a minister here a while back, I can't remember who it was, and he was saying, he just gets tired of, of all the, the pettiness that goes on sometimes in the church. And he wasn't talking necessarily about here. I don't, I don't know who it was, but I don't think it was here. But I would guess that there's probably pettiness that goes on here. We've talked about coffee pot wars. They're still going on in the church. Where one woman gets mad because somebody else gets to bring the coffee pot. 
or bought the coffee pot. And, and here the whole world is about ready to blow up in our face. And we're worried about who brought the coffee pot or who hands out hymn books or whatever else it might be. Now, what, what, where are we looking? You know, here's what bothers me. Here's what bothers me about some of these things. And, and that is this. Some people are losing their focus even as the storm clouds rise higher and higher. If you just stop and look at the where the world's going, I wish I knew who it was. Mr. Reese Ellis was telling us at the feast that uh, a, a Frenchman who is very highly respected in Europe, a statesman, I don't think he's a politician, but he, he's one of those people that is looked upon with great respect has actually made the statement that where we're headed there in Europe and the Middle East and all is to war. That's where we're headed. And I think if we cannot see that, then we're blind. Isn't that what Laodicea is? We're blind. And I have a concern that maybe we're not watching and praying and doing the things as much as we really should because when people get caught up in pettiness and little stuff and fail to see the big picture something is wrong and they're being too much like the disciples who on the night in which Jesus was betrayed were arguing about who should sit where or who is the greatest Edersheim brings out very interestingly that probably the, uh, the discussion as who is the greatest had to do with where everybody sat. And, and Judas, who would make sense, was sitting close to Christ because Christ was able to give him the sop. And this was not a table like you normally think of. It was you know, on the floor and they were laying down there. And, and then you, you read about how Jesus, or I'm sorry, John leaned back on Jesus' chest or breast there. And, and if they're with their feet and back and the table out front and they're eating with their hands... They didn't use knives and forks back then. Don't want to shake anybody up there. Uh, but Christ ate with his hands, so I guess that, that that's our, your kids. They're doing okay. Um, you know, it, it was a simple thing if they were leaning with, with on one arm and just to, to lean back and say, Lord, who is it? And very likely, Judas was a part of that about who's the greatest, and he was sitting right next to him. And Edersheim tries to figure out where everybody's sitting, and I don't think he could figure out where everybody was, but at least the key players, John and Judas, were very close to Christ in proximity. Uh, John had to be right next to him, and probably Judas was on the other side of him. Some people are losing their focus as the storm clouds rise higher and higher. I do wonder how many are watching and praying. I know that most of God's people are. But I don't know that any of us really grasp where we are in time. We are headed for something that is, is going to be so shocking that even though we know it, it's going to be hard to, to comprehend as our world crashes down around us. Have you read Dr. Maris' article on prayer in the Living Church News? I think this latest edition of the Living Church News is one of the best we've ever put out. There's a very, you know, down-to-earth article by Dr. Merith on prayer that we would all do well to, to remember. Mr. McNair has an article on trust, trusting God. Mr. Nathan has an article there on meekness. Very interesting article there. And then there are a lot of other articles there. The Woman to Woman one, uh, very interesting, by Mrs. Amon. How many are studying the Word of God? How many are taking the time to fast and draw closer to God? You know, it's human nature to procrastinate and think that, well, when I have to get zealous, I'll get zealous. That's usually a bad time because it doesn't always work out the way that we want it to. 
On the night in which Christ was crucified, Peter was instructed to watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Three times he fell asleep on the job, and three times he denied Christ. And when the time came to stand up, three times he failed, as we say. God is merciful, and he did not cast him off. He didn't cast him aside. He, he worked with him. And when time came at the end of, you know, at the end of his life, he, he was willing to stand up. He was willing to put his life on the line in the end. He became a lesson for us. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, it says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. But you know there's good news in all this, and that is that if we put our trust in Christ, if we truly do, not just in, in name or whatever, and in, in profession, but we put our trust in Christ because we build that faith on a daily basis with prayer and study, not prayer and study just to get our prayer in or our study in, but because we're trying to build that relationship with our Creator, we will have the strength to endure any trial. Even the most timid amongst us, if we're close to God, will be able to stand up. We'll even surprise ourselves. As we're told in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things. How? Through Christ who strengthens me.